I'm glad to be here with you this morning as we talk about honest prayers to God, real people with real problems and struggles, crying out to God with their hearts, with their lives and their circumstances, because that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to talk to him. But as we talked about last week, you know, prayer can be a struggle because prayer can become mechanical. And that we, we feel like we have to say these certain words in a certain order and, and it just becomes stale and it becomes passionless. We talked about how um, we can struggle with prayer becoming measured. In other words, we're intimidated by it. Our life becomes, our prayer becomes mundane because our conversations with God uh, aren't full of passion. We're not crying out to God. We're not really talking to him. And prayer can become simply a means to an end, a way to manipulate or convince God for something that that I want. But we ask the question, what if prayer was a way to get so close to God that he lives his life through me? What if prayer felt less like asking for something and and more about enjoying someone? As I get to know God better and learn to trust his intentions for me, my heart begins to reflect his heart. And as my heart reflects his heart and I I begin to pray for things, I'm I'm praying for things that God wants as well. And so real prayer is talking honestly with God in the context of a relationship with him. God wants you to talk to him. The truth is, some of our greatest prayers will be prayed in desperate times. Now, I've been talking, I've been thinking and and, uh, reading a lot about prayer lately, and I was raised that before you eat, you pray. You pray and you thank God for providing the food, the hands that provided it. You thank him for providing himself what we truly need most. But it often leads to some interesting dilemmas. Like when you go to a Mexican restaurant, and you go to a Mexican restaurant, do you pray before the chips and salsa or when the food comes? <laughs> you know, if we were, we would probably split pretty evenly between pre, mid, and post salsa prayers. In fact, I was, uh, I was at a wedding last night, <clears throat> and I was sitting with my friend Jason, and I asked him that question, are you a pre, mid, or post salsa prayer? And he said, oh, definitely post. He goes, because chips and salsa is already a blessing. (laughs) So, you know, what do you do? What if you go, what if you get a salad? Do you pray before the salad, during the salad, or after the salad when the meal comes? Well, what about uh, your group prays and you're in the bathroom and you come back and they've already prayed for the food? Do you have to pray again or does that prayer count or... You know, we come up with all these dilemmas about prayer and, and how we do it and where we do it and how long. And, but if prayer is simply a, a ritual or something we do to be religious, these dilemmas take on more importance than they really deserve. Because what matters most is talking to God in a context of a very real relationship with him. This morning, we're going to look at the story of of the life of a guy named King Hezekiah. Um, You can look up here on the screen. You can can turn to your Bible or device. We're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 18. Now, 2 Kings is sandwiched between 
First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, and it's interesting because the story is not only told here, but it's also told in another book called Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-two. And not only that, but it's it's shared again a third time in the book of Isaiah, chapter thirty-seven. And so you get the idea that, wow, this story is repeated three times in God's word in the Bible. It must be pretty significant. Well, just last week, uh, we talked about that Hezekiah is a real guy at a real point in history who faced big problems just like Elijah. The kingdom of Israel is split into two nations. There's now a northern kingdom called Israel, a southern kingdom called Judah. And we know that the northern, the northern kings were, were progressively more and more wicked and perverse. But it was different in Judea because they had a mix of good and bad kings. And the bad king was, would come along and he would build these pagan altars and things. And then the good king would come along and he would tear those down and begin worshiping uh, the living Lord again. And, uh, <clears throat> but it wasn't until Hezekiah that the nation began to transform, that he brought the nation back to God. Hezekiah was the son of one of Judah's most wicked kings. His name was King Ahaz. He shut the doors of the temple to God. He built altars, uh, pagan altars around town and and on the high places and encouraged people not to worship just the the living Lord God, but uh, worship all these other pagan gods as well. Well, King Ahaz even went as far as sacrificing some of his sons on those pagan altars. At the time when Ahaz was in a sticky situation, he allied himself with the wicked and terrible Assyrians to get his nation out of a jam. And that decision would would end up with the Assyrians taking away captive the northern kingdom and sitting at the doorsteps of the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's a prime example of what happens when we take matters into our own hands without God. Hezekiah fortunately wasn't a fan of his father's wickedness. He destroyed the high places and the pagan altars that his father had built. He destroyed the religious relics that the people had turned into idols. And we read this description of Hezekiah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Well, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't mind some words like that being the record of my life. He trusted the Lord. He he held fast to the Lord. He obeyed the Lord. How did he do it? He came out of such a mess. His father was so evil and wicked and and, and, and the home had to be a wreck. So how did he do it? And as I read his story, one of the things that appears several times is Hezekiah's prayer life. He consistently and constantly talked to the Lord. He wanted to know his God. And it became a lifestyle of prayer and, and talking to God. 
You see, he needed this. He needed to be a man of prayer because Hezekiah inherited a mess. One of the first things he does is to to reopen and repair the temple. He launches a, a nationwide revival to turn the hearts of the people back to God. But in order to understand the story, I need to give a little political and military background, and that is the, the nation had, under King Ahaz had turned their backs on God, had aligned themselves with this evil superpower, Assyria, which, led, which was led at this time by a guy named King Sennacherib. <laughs> but it's interesting because the Assyrians weren't like the other superpowers of that time. They surpassed everyone in their sheer savagery and cruelty, brutality. As they conquered new places, they took, they took the leaders from their places and they hung their bodies on poles. Archaeological digs have uncovered artwork from that time that, that shows Sennacherib seated on his throne and, and drinking wine and, and eating grapes while in the background are hanging upside down his enemies his headless enemies. Not only were they violent, but they were masters of psychological warfare. They were intimidating. They were masters of fear. And this is who Ahaz had aligned the nation with. And so when Hezekiah takes the throne, he's like, I'm not going to have any part of that. I'm no longer paying tribute to the Assyrians. Which you can imagine the Assyrians weren't very happy with. And Sennacherib was like, well, your rebellion is not going to go unpunished. And at the time, Sennacherib and the Assyrians wanted to attack Egypt. But he he knew he couldn't have a hostile nation, the kingdom of Judah, at his back. So he starts to attack all the fortified cities of Judah. And by the time Sennacherib makes his way to Jerusalem and King Hezekiah, he's on a rampage. He's captured 46 fortified cities. He's taken over 200,000 people into captivity. This was a ruthless, massive, seemingly unstoppable army to be feared. Unless you think it's just another story the Bible's made up, there's stone carvings and walls that archaeologists have studied and include battle scenes and, and impalings and scenes showing Sennacherib's men parading the spoils of war. He bragged about his conquest. He wrote of his conquest of Babylon, its inhabitants, young and old, I did not spare, and with their corpses I filled the streets of the city. And now... This army is at the gates of Jerusalem. Hezekiah's kingdom is under attack. So what does he do? It leads to the first thing we need to understand this morning, and that is prayer is not just a last resort. It's a first response. And yet how many times have I heard or found myself saying something like, well, you know, it's out of my hands. I guess all I can do is pray. In other words, I've done all that I can. Now, God, it's your turn. But real prayer is not, it, real, real prayer is a first response, not a last resort. For all of his trust in the Lord and reforms, we see Hezekiah suffer an uncharacteristic but very understandable lapse of faith. We read that when he heard about all the fortified cities falling to Assyria, he apologizes. 
He apologizes to the king of Assyria and, and, and confesses his wrongdoing and saying, oh, I'm sorry, I should have known better. Because he was afraid. He was afraid for himself. He was afraid for his people. He gives up, he ends up giving the Assyrians all the silver that they could find in the temple and in the royal treasuries. He stripped the temple of God of its gold embellishments and hoped that this would be enough to keep them at bay. And so in a lapse of faith, Hezekiah was following the exact same patterns as his wicked father. Well, rather than playing by the rules, rather than accepting the bribes, the Assyrian king sent his generals and commanders and a huge army to confront Hezekiah. And here's what I find fascinating. At the end of 17, we read this. They, these generals and commanders came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. They're like, okay, what's... <laughs> What's that about? Why, why is that in there? Why is it important? Why is that so fascinating? Well, it's fascinating because, because 34 years earlier, we read in Isaiah chapter 7 that Hezekiah's dad, Ahaz, met with Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet at that exact same place when his faith was being tested. Same place, same kind of crisis. Ahaz also had several choices to make in, this day, in his day. He could surrender to his armies. He could, he could trust and appeal to the Lord, an option that Isaiah the prophet begged him to take. Or he could appeal to the might of the Assyrian armies and make them his protector. Well, he decides, I'm not going to surrender, and he, he decides, I'm not going to follow God. I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to rely on the might of the Assyrian army. And that's how, now 34 years later, the Assyrians are at the gate of Jerusalem. You see, for both Ahaz and Hezekiah, at this moment, God was not their first response, but their last resort. And they trusted themselves, and it intensified the problem. And I want you to imagine this, like, Imagine a ship that's being tossed in a storm and, and the wind and the waves are carrying it into the cliffs and the rocks. And the captain comes over the intercom, we, we got to drop anchor to save our ship. And so all the deckmates, they get out and they, they grab the anchor and they drop it on the deck of the ship. <laughs> and the captain's like, no, I, that, that's not going to do any good. I, I, you need to drop it you know, somewhere else. And so they pick it up and, and they drop it in the, in the hold of the ship. <laughs> and they continue to be pushed against the rocks and the cliffs. And the story is, is kind of ridiculous, isn't it? Because we know that an anchor is no good if you put it on the ship. The anchor has to be put into the water, into the storm. But I wonder if in the same way when we rely on ourselves, it's like trying to anchor a ship without throwing it overboard. You see, prayer must be a first response, not a last resort. But that doesn't just mean that we say, well, I'm going to let go and let God. Where all I do is pray and, and just hope for the best. I don't pray and become passive. No, real prayer is accompanied by faith and action. 
You see, I don't know for sure, but I, I think that meeting at the washerman's field reminded Hezekiah that failing to listen to and trust God doesn't go well. In the account told in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, we find that Hezekiah consults with his uh, uh, officers and they decide they need to make some preparations. They rebuilt the existing wall, added exterior walls, reorganized their military, rearmed the people. They were going to be proactive because you don't wait till the storm hits. You anticipate trouble beforehand and make sure that your house is in order. And to put your house in order, you do what Hezekiah and his officers did. You block off the bad, you mend the broken, you strengthen the weak. Rather than have Sennacherib's army show up and have plenty of water from the spring outside the city wall, the people of Jerusalem blocked up the spring and diverted its water through an almost 2,000-foot underground tunnel into the city. It was one of the greatest water engineering works of its day. It was amazing. And as a result, as the Assyrians came with their battering ramps to demolish the walls around the city, Judah's troops kept lighting them on fire. Their battering rams were, were, were burning and, and the Assyrians needed water to extinguish the flames, but the water supplies were blocked. You see, having faith doesn't prevent us from taking action. And some people get the impression that, that having faith means the end of ingenuity and initiative. Not at all. We work because we have faith. We work in our faith. We, we let our faith spur us to action. Faith sometimes implies fighting well for the right things in the right way. But because Hezekiah also knew, he knew these actions weren't going to be enough. Rearming the people and new weapons and new walls wasn't going to be enough to keep the Assyrian army from overtaking them. And so in the midst of these preparations, he realizes, <clears throat> he rallies and he rallies the hearts of the people and points them to God. And we read, he assembled the people before him in the square at the city gate and encouraged them with these words, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. You see, Hezekiah knew that they not only had to get their house in order, he needed to help the people get their hearts in order. He knew the need for preparation, but he also knew that those plans were limited their deliverance would have to come from the Lord. And so you see, we, we need to pray first, we need to pray last. And sometimes all we can do is pray. Followers of Christ tend to, tend to fall into one of two camps, the doers and the prayers. Hezekiah shows that we need both. And so now they, they meet at the washerman's field, at the aqueduct, and the Assyrian commander begins to taunt the people in the city. He speaks in their common language so they can understand all of his trash talk. He's trying to intimidate them into submission. 
And so he uses a series of truths and half-truths and, and threats and promises and mockery to eat at their confidence. His goal is to undermine their confidence in Hezekiah and in the Lord. It's interesting that the central word of his little taunt here is trust. It's used eight times in his, in his little taunt of the people in Jerusalem. He challenges their faith. He challenges their trust, their confidence, their dependence. And then he lists their options. He says, you guys can trust your own military, but our military is going to overpower you. You don't have a chance. Their second option was to trust Egypt and and ask them to come to their rescue. But as the commander says that they... Egypt was known to bite the hand that fed them. Their third option was trust God. The commander says, trust in your God. Your your king has has destroyed all the altars and and all the worship places, so (laughs) trust him. And he mocks Hezekiah's God. He boasts that the Assyrian army is 10 and 0 against other kings and their gods. Why would Judah be any different? <laughs> and again, his, his taunt is summarized with a lot, with a few words, with a lot of weight when he asks, On whom are you depending? On whom are you depending? You see, because real prayer involves leaning into God. If the true test of leadership is what you do under pressure, Hezekiah was in the thick of it. His response is to go before the Lord in humility, knowing that only God could deal with the problem, and then he seeks out a word from Isaiah the prophet. Their chances look slim to none, but as a result of the commander's taunts, Hezekiah knew that this was no longer an issue between him and the king the king of Assyria, the issue now was an issue of God's honor and God's glory. The issue was now between Assyria and the living God because the Assyrian king had reduced God to the status of a, of a pagan local God. He would discover that God is the living Lord God, Lord of all creation from whom there is no escape. Well, the commander's challenge to Hezekiah and the people of God was on whom do you trust? And I often think, you know, when we go through life, our trust and confidence in the Lord will always be the first thing to be attacked. Our confidence in God's goodness and power will always be the first thing to be shaken. The antidote for these attacks is a knowledge of God grounded in his faithfulness. It begins with a prayer that leans into God, leans in to dependence on God. You see, someone has said the Christian life can be summed up in six words, not knowing where I know whom. Living by faith accepts not knowing all the answers beforehand, but knowing the God who has the answers and trusting him. Not knowing where I know whom. Because to know God and trust him is enough. Well, the taunt from the commander again was, on whom are you depending? On whom, on whom do you trust? You see, we're always living by faith. 
whether it be faith in something else or whether it be faith in God, we're always living in some kind of faith. But here's the thing, if your trust is in God, you begin, your prayers change. If you trust in God, you choose to pray not till the answer comes. You choose to pray not till circumstances change. You trust in God not until things go your way. You trust in God and you choose to pray and you pray until your faith, <clears throat> your faith is in God and not what you're asking for. Your faith is in God and not what you're asking for. Because peace comes not from the absence of problems, but the presence of God. It reminds of another great story that we won't get into, but three men of God who are ready to be thrown into a fiery furnace because of their exclusive faith in God. And we listen to their words to the king. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us. But listen to this. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. In other words, they're saying we have faith that God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we still have faith because not knowing where, we do know whom. And that's how we lean into God. We read in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. He will direct your way. You see, when we trust with all our hearts, we're saying, I want this. I'm passionate about it. This is my focus. This is my goal. It means to commit yourself totally to something. In fact, the word here means to lean with your full weight, to depend completely. You see, when, when you were a kid and someone asked, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> I doubt if any one of us said, well, I, I want to be wishy-washy. <laughs> right? No, when somebody asked you, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's like, oh, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a superhero. I want to be a pro athlete. I want to be a doctor, a teacher. You know, isn't that the same with your life in Christ? When you begin your life with Christ, you don't set out to be wishy-washy in your faith. You want to be sold out, all out, completely given over to him. He wants us to trust in him with, with all our heart, to lean into him with all of our weight. You see, we're to trust in his love. We're to trust in, in Jesus' death on the cross for the complete payment of our sin, his resurrection to life today and for forever. So when we run into problems we, don't, we can't solve or problems that overcome us, he tells us, don't go back. God tells us, don't go under it, don't go around it, don't avoid it, go through it. You see, Ahaz tried to go around his problem and it led to more problems. Hezekiah soon realized that the only path was to go through it and to fully lean on his God. Well, after Hezekiah receives the affirming message from God through the prophet Isaiah, King Sennacherib sends another message, another taunt of intimidation. 
We won't read it because it basically says, you're going to die. We're going to overthrow Jerusalem. It's going to be a mess. And when Hezekiah received the letter, he responded in faith. And we read, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Now, I love the picture of this. You see, Hezekiah took the the, the letter, (laughs) the threatening letter that said, you're going to die. You don't have a chance. We're going to impale your leaders on poles and hang them from trees as prizes. We're going to stack your skulls in a pyramid as some kind of trophy. And Hezekiah takes that letter and he spreads it out. And he goes to the temple and spreads it out before the Lord. And he cries out to God. Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now... Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. And then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I have heard your prayer. I want you to just think about that. He's crying out in an honest-to-God prayer. He was being real with God. He understands that what really, what really matters is not his relationship with the king of Assyria, but his relationship with the king of kings and lord of lords. His first concern is the honor of God in the world. Sennacherib mocks the living God and and God's people were the reason for it and Hezekiah's heart, it breaks for the right reason and his passion is for God's glory to be known throughout the whole earth. You see, real prayer prioritizes God's honor so that the world might know him. Listen again to verse 19 in his prayer. He cries out, now Lord our God, deliver us from his hand. And I stop right there because I think sometimes a lot of our prayers end right there. Lord God, deliver me from from his hand. Deliver me, save me, help me, provide for me. But Hezekiah goes further in his prayer and he answers the why. Why am I praying for this? So that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. You see, Hezekiah understands something really important. His life, he sees his life as a platform for the display of God's glory to the world. Borrowing from one of our values here at Grace Church, Hezekiah understood that he lives to make God make sense. He's not treating God as a means to his own ends. 
His passion and his purpose is so that the world would make much of God and be drawn to him. It reminds me of the prayer of the early church when under severe persecution they prayed, now Lord, consider their threats and enable us to speak your word with great boldness. You see, they weren't concerned as much about their personal safety. They were more concerned that God would use them in a way that would lead people, even the people who were persecuting them, to the truth of Jesus. And Hezekiah cried out to the Lord God to prove himself among the nations. Victory itself had had a God-honoring, God-revealing purpose. God, not Sennacherib, was in charge of human history. Sennacherib had no future in Judah. And we read in the next verse, verse 35, the end of the story comes quickly and briefly. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, they were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One angel, one verse, one night. God reveals his power, his authority, his sovereignty over the nations, his faithfulness to his people. It's interesting, we have records that, that Sennacherib had written of his campaign against Jerusalem. He writes, and Hezekiah of Judah, who had not submitted to my yoke, him I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city like a caged bird. Earthworks I threw up against him, and anyone coming out of his city gate, I made pay for his crime. His cities which I had plundered, I had cut off from his hand, and then it stops. That's the extent of his, of his record. You see, rather than recording the amount of captives and how he conquered the city and and having frescoes and and paintings made of of his conquest of Jerusalem, he simply stops with, "We, we had him surrounded. You see, the point is, Sennacherib's account ends there because the rest was humiliation. He wouldn't want this recorded in history. And I think it's fascinating that the Bible takes 54 verses to describe the scene and the taunts and the prayers, and in just one verse, everything's over. One night, one angel, one verse. It seems almost a little anticlimactic because the real drama and the emphasis of this story is Hezekiah's trust in the Lord his God. See, the Bible describes the Assyrian king's end just as God had described it would happen. Sennacherib went back to his hometown of Nineveh, and one day as he goes to his pagan temple, to his pagan god, and, he, <clears throat> and he's praying to his pagan god, his own sons murdered him. You think about the contrast. <laughs> Sennacherib went to his temple of his pagan god and was murdered. Hezekiah went to the temple of the living God and was delivered, and his name was made renowned throughout the earth. You know, I wondered if we prayed in this way how our perspective and passion for prayer might change. In fact, what if we were to see ourselves as living, as living proof that God changes lives? What if we saw ourselves and our circumstances as opportunities to make Jesus make sense? 
And we prayed in that direction. A long time ago, it was actually 1988, some people were asking earlier, 1988, I went on this trip to the Central African Republic, and it was uh, seven weeks. And uh, we were all excited, my friend Jim and I, we began praying on day one that God would show us something big. You know, when you go to Africa, what do you want to see? You want to see animals. <laughs> so we were praying from day one, God, you know, praying a lot of other stuff, but praying, God, you know, we just want to see, we want to see something big. Show us an elephant. We want to see a hippopotamus. We want to see a herd of zebra, something. Well, we were six and a half weeks into our seven-week trip, and we had seen a handful of monkeys, some lizards, and a lot of termites. <laughs> And so with just a couple days left till we, till we flew home, Jim and I were walking through the city of Bangui. And we were just walking and talking, and a guy stops us, and he stops Jim, and he says, can I have your shoes? <laughs> well, I was a little offended. He didn't want my shoes, but <laughs> Jim was like, well, yeah. And he took his shoes off, his tennis shoes, right there in the street and gave them to the guy, he said, yeah, I have more back at the mission and we've only got a couple days left. So yeah, here, have these shoes. This guy was so appreciative. He goes, ah, oh. he goes, thank you so much. I, 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 wanna, I want you to meet somebody. We had no idea who he was gonna introduce us to, but we said, sure. He said, well, meet us at this certain bar at a certain amount of time. And, and so Jim and I went back to the mission and we got our missionary, Martin Garber, and and he came with us, and he met Fernan, who was the equipment manager of the Central African Republic Olympic team. And they had won just uh, like the, the Africa Cup. They had, they had played basketball. They had beat Egypt to get first place in the continent of Africa. <laughs> he says, I want you to meet the, the head coach. And so we met the head coach, and the head coach was like, yeah, I, I think this is interesting. We have these Americans in Bangui. We want to play you guys in some basketball. <laughs> and so Martin was like, well, sure, that sounds great. Our guys will play basketball. And he said, under one condition. He said, at halftime, you let us share why we're here. And so the news went out across Central African Republic radio. Central African Republic Olympic team versus the Americans. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> they set up a hangar with a basketball court and, and, uh, and they put in stands and, and chairs and, and the place packed out. <laughs> they gave us uniforms. You can show the picture. I'm, I'm there in the middle, number 13. They gave us their two best guys, and uh, we ended up winning 76 to 74, but I think they scored 70 of those points. <laughs> but it was so exciting and so fun because the, the people were for us, and they were cheering for us, and any time one of us boonzoos is what they call white guys, you know, they call us boonzoos, and say, boonzoo, 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 and they just got so excited, it's like, wow, you know, it kind of throws your shot off a little bit, right? <clears throat> So we played them, and at halftime, we, we sang some songs in Songo that we had learned, and we were able to share the story of Jesus. 
with the five to 600 people we never would have rubbed shoulders with who needed desperately to hear the hope that we have in Jesus. <laughs> I think, you know, we were praying for elephants. <laughs> and God did this amazing, miraculous thing, something that was, we would never have thought of ourselves or was possible. And God provided us this opportunity to make Jesus make sense to five to 600 people. How do we pray in such a way that we come, become more aware and more centered on what God prioritizes? You see, we, we typically pray for better jobs and better children and better spouses, even elephants. Because we want God, make my life better. But what if we pray like the early church? What if we were to pray like Hezekiah, Lord, I just want you to be God to me. I want to know you more and more of you, less of me. And in knowing you more, I want to trust you. I want to fully lean on you through my life, through my dreams, through my hurts, my problems, my circumstances. Show the world that you are who you say you are. What if we were to pray, help me to live to make you make sense? I wonder this morning if you have something you need to spread out before the Lord. Praying that through whatever situation or circumstance through your life, that your life might make Jesus make sense to a world that doesn't know him. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that you give us this hope in you, that you allow us to know our creator, our heavenly father, and you desire for us to talk to you, to pour out our lives and our dreams and to be honest with you. Lord, to spread out before you the things in our lives that most irritate us and, and keep us anxious and fearful and concerned and worried and Lord to spread it out before you Lord thank you that you give us opportunity to do that that you want to hear those things and you want to use those things to make Jesus make sense in and through our lives to people around us who do not yet know Christ know Jesus as Lord and Savior Lord use us use me Use this church to make your name renowned that the world might know you as you truly are. Father, I pray that my prayers would reflect that more of you, less of me. Father, use me to make your name known among the nations. Father, thank you for the privilege of being called a child of God. I love you too. In Jesus' name.